Hallelujah. All right. Well, last week I said I was going to start the overview of what I've been teaching for the past six months on the kingdom of God. I felt like the Lord said, just take it, condense it, and hit those points. Um, and um, what I ended up doing last week was just giving a precursor as to why I believe I, why God has had me teach it. And the things that I said last week still stand. I believe that why is valid, that the Lord is wanting to bring us to the gates of our nation and put us in place of influence. But the only way to get there is, as we said during our prayer time this morning, is we, we must take off our shoes and be on holy ground with the Lord. It's got to be about Jesus and his gospel, of course. What else is there? Hallelujah. So this is actually overview part one. And let me just start by saying that the kingdom of God is the most important message in the church right now today. And uh, <clears throat> that's why halfway through this year, the Lord told me, put aside teaching everything else, except for a couple of messages, I put everything aside and start expounding and teaching and preaching and declaring on the, the kingdom of God. And so this is an overview of those truths that for the past five or six months we've been laying down, but we're just going to without re-preaching the messages, just touch on them because I believe the Lord for what's coming wants us to just cons consolidate and have a, 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 a reminding view. And so truth number one is what I call buying the field, buying the field. And it comes from Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44 where Jesus, <clears throat> ever the master of condensing huge thoughts into short phrases, said, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field, period. That was the end of his teaching. <laughs> this is what the kingdom of God is. At the heart of that simple message, Jesus is basically saying that the treasure which is Jesus Christ, is planted in the field of the kingdom of God, and the two are inseparable. That was the, the first thing that he wanted us to get, is that to have the treasure, you must buy the field. And I would say that it is impossible to have what, what Jesus Christ brought to earth, what he brought into the world. It's impossible to truly have it to possess it without selling all to possess the field that he planted it in. So the first thing we must know about the kingdom of God is you cannot extract Jesus and his wonderful message, the gospel, and take it into the world and plant it into a worldly context and expect it to make that context blessed. It is not a fix for a fallen world. It is a salvation and deliverance from the evil that binds the kingdom of darkness that binds this world. And we're going to learn that in order to have that fix, God requires that we sell all and buy the entire field, which is the kingdom. You can't just take the king and try to make him king of your school or king of your local government or king of your house. You must put yourself in his kingdom <clears throat> to have the blessing of his kingship, of his lordship. So the price of the kingdom, <coughs> pardon me, 
we're, ha we're having a cold snap here in Florida for those that are viewing. I think it's down to 80 this morning, something like that. So we're, if you could see the congregation, we're all bundled up. Um, so the price of the kingdom is exclusivity. As I said several months ago, Jesus don't date. Jesus doesn't date. You've got to move in with him. And, and he doesn't shack up either. You have, to, you have to become the bride of Christ. That's why he used the analogy. It, it is just like when a, when a groom and a bride stand at that altar. They enter into a covenant. Never to be, what God has put together, let not man put asunder. When we get saved, that's what we're doing. We are leaving behind all of the other things that we used to date. We're selling all to live in the kingdom. And, and when you buy the field, when you buy the kingdom of God, you've just sold everything. So where are you going to live? You're going to live in that field. That's the other thing about that teaching that I think Jesus wants us to realize is that when you sell all, all you have now is the, the kingdom. But that's all you need. And so you have to relocate. So in order to have the power of the kingdom, you must relocate to the kingdom where Jesus is king. I'll just give this quick little anecdotal testimony. When I was first converted to Christ from atheism, I was still a teenager in my late teens. And <clears throat> um, I got saved in what was called the, the Jesus movement, late 60s, early 70s, 71, that era. And um, came out of atheism. And so I was extremely secular in all of my ways and in all of my thinking. I had never opened the Bible. How do you become an atheist and you've never opened the Bible to find out what, how do you make an educated decision? But, uh, you know, when you're, when you're young, you just think you know everything. So I didn't, I had never opened the Bible once in my life. Before I became a Christian, I'd never prayed once in my life. The, the first time I prayed was alone in my bedroom at night when I said, God, are you for real? And Jesus revealed himself to me and I said, Lord, if you can give me a life, I'll give you you give me your life, I'll give you my life. And that's how I got saved. It happened like that. I woke up the next morning, radicalized Christian. Hallelujah. Um, but the next big event in my life, um, I went and found some Christians at a place called the Father's House, which is a Christian commune, which is kind of funny because it was down in the northeast sector of St. Pete, right off Coffee Pot Bayou Road where all the mansions are. And a bunch of hippie Jesus people had taken over a mansion. And uh, so it was a commune. And so our, you know, I could say I was in a commune. Um, but uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you see, you know, out in the Arizona desert, barefoot and dirty and living off spam and government uh, chicken. But, um, you know, we had it pretty good. So um, God, God was good. But the next big event in my life was I moved to the Father's house. I, I wish I had time to share the testimony because it's really dramatic. But it just sufficed to say that I, was, I, I had a dream as I was about to wake up to go to work. My wife and I both worked in the same location. And just before I woke up, the Lord came to me in a dream and he said, leave and go to the Father's house. God is very economy of words. Just leave and go to the Father's house. I woke up, it was ringing in my ears. I literally, by noon that day, I was at the Father's house. I stopped by my, I was in school I just quit going to school. I was uh, by my work. I stopped by my work, walked in. He said, you're late. I said, no, I quit. 
I, I won't be back. I'm, I'm here to get my check. So, you know, the Lord said go. And it was, how long do I need? I need a couple hours to throw clothes in a bag and out the door. As I was walking out the door, my mother came home uh, early. And some, some of the Jesus guys were there from the father's house. And at, the, at my mother's apartment, she opens the apartment door, and they're there, and I'm there, and I've got my duffel bag with my clothes in it. She said, what's going on? I said, I'm going to the Father's house. Jesus, I had a dream. Jesus told me to go to the Father's house. And my mom's about as secular as they come. So my mom kind of got me by the ear and takes me outside. Um, and she got my face. And my mom, I'm 6'2", 6'3", my mom's 5'3", so she got up in my face. And she said, are you out of your mind? She said, what are you, she said, you have a great mind, you have a good mind, what about your education? Um, you know, what are you doing? You're throwing your mind away. I said, I don't need it, I'm led by the Spirit. <laughs> That's exactly what I said to her, Mom, I don't need a mind, I'm led by the Spirit. So, you know, in our youthful zeal for Christ, maybe we don't have everything worked out just the way it should, but God moves through that. And so the next big event in my life was I, I moved to the father's house. I bought the field. I bought the field. I left everything. I, when I left my, my mom's apartment where I was going to school and working and everything, I'd already left home once with living, in, living on my own, and I came back and was straightening my life out, and that's when I got saved. And the Lord said, nope, that's not going to do. I have plans for your life. And so I ditched my plans. I bought the field. You don't hear a lot of testimonies like this today. And that was not the first time. That was the beginning of a lifestyle of ditching things for God speaking through dreams and saying, go here and do this and do that. And, and they just got bigger and bigger after that. But with every one of those steps, I found that the, the way to truly, truly know Jesus, in fact, it, at least in my experience, I don't think we can intimately truly know him the way he wants to be known without leaving all to follow Jesus. And I, and I honestly, I present that to you. I don't know what leaving all to follow Jesus means for each and every one of you. If that's not my call. And I only share my testimony just to give you a little bit of context. God will show you. Remember, it was the Lord who spoke to me in a dream said, go to the Father's house. So it's up to God to speak to us. So the price of the kingdom is exclusivity. Jesus must exclusively own our life. If you want to know the, the intimacy of God and know the power of God, that's what it takes. And we need to get back to preaching that in our churches. When we lead people to Christ, I guess it's fine to lure them to the altar with incentives. Jesus will make you happy. Jesus will take your burdens. Jesus will bless your life. But I don't think we're doing people a real service without telling them what discipleship is all about. Taking up our cross and following Jesus is what leads to the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, kingdom truth number two is really a question, and that is, what is the kingdom? We have an idea of what kingdoms are. We have pictures of kings and usually oppressed people living in serfdom around the, the castle. The king owns everything. And those, those are earthly models, but in the kingdom of God is the perfect example and uh, true, the king owns everything. But in our case, the king, the Bible says, has a, has a description. It's agape. God is love. 
God is love. And anything he ever does in our life or through our life or for us is always leaves us in a better place than before it was done. God loves us. So what is the kingdom of God? Romans 4, excuse me, 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is, finish it with me, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said. He had a revelation of the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Well, that sounds rather abstract. What, is, what kind of a kingdom is that? We want physical boundaries. We want somebody in charge telling us what to do. So what kind of a kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy? Now, I'll take just a moment to explain it to you, but it, it's absolutely you have to get this. You can't allow that corrupt model of what a kingdom is to continue to define for you what the kingdom of God is like. You need to get this next point. The kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the domain of God's influence. And, and I leave it as open-ended as I can because it's expansive, it's, it's infinite. The kingdom of God is the dominion of his influence. Wherever his influence is, is ruling and superseding and has applied his character, that is his kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. If your home is full of righteousness, peace, and joy, and when trouble arises and faults take place and struggles arise, there's righteousness, peace, and joy there that work it out. And you fall, but you get back up. So that's the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. When those things rule your life, what that means is that God does not exert his influence through coercion like an earthly king with his armies, with his sheriff, with his, with his uh, enforcers of law. God doesn't, does not bring people into his kingdom by sending out the, the, the kingdom of God police or the armies and conquering them and dragging them in by coercion. The kingdom of God exerts its influence not through coercion, but through character, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It must be chosen because it will never be coerced. It will never be forced over you. We must choose the character of God. But God rules his kingdom through his character. Now abides, 1 Corinthians, the love chapter says, 1 Corinthians 12, or 13, now abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So <clears throat> God does not exert his influence by coercion, but by character. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 46 says, He brings an end to wars throughout the earth. Let that sink in this week. Hallelujah. He shatters the bow and breaks the spear, and he burns the, the shields with fire. He says, stop your striving and recognize that I am God and I will be exalted over the nations. I will be exalted over the earth. Now listen, this is God giving his advice about his kingdom. Stop your striving and simply be still and recognize, take it in the character of God. Realize that I am God. For in your absorbing, 
the truth of God's word, in your, in your realizing that the gospel is true and taking it into your heart, letting the Holy Spirit apply it to your life so that it becomes the fruit of the Spirit within you, God says, by doing that, by recognizing that I'm God, I will through that, through people doing that, I will be exalted over the earth. I will be exalted over the nations. So that's how the kingdom of God grows. It's people like you and I who take it in, take in the character, because he's not going to use coercion. And he will not let us go out and use coercion to spread the kingdom of God, because that's not his method. He uses his character. So when we go shine the light of the fruit of the Spirit, when we live Christ before people, and thirsty people see the peace, see the love, see the joy, they see the righteousness, they, they see the power, they say, what is that power? You're a very charismatic person. Uh, did you go to finishing school? Is that where you got that? And you say, oh no, I didn't go to a school. That's the Holy Spirit. And uh, I was a, a crude, ignorant, rough person. And, um, and in my case, I can tell them how that children fled from me and were scared to death. Dogs bit me. Cats had scratched me. I, I, was, I was a walking adversarial person. And right after I got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, children could, wouldn't leave, leave. I'd have to shake them off. They just would grab me. Dogs licking me. Cats wanting, and I'm allergic to cats. So when people see that, you'd say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus. So the, the kingdom of God is advanced as we share through his living in us, his character in us. Praise the Lord. So the kingdom of God's not a religion that you practice. It is divine character that governs you. And that's how the kingdom grows. Hallelujah. It, it begins with God's universal seed principle. You plant it as the seed of Christ, the living word within, and it grows and then it starts affecting your family and others around you. It starts within. So please, let's get back to that principle. If we want power and influence out there, we need to have the fruit and the power of the fruit and the character, righteousness, peace, and joy governing us. You must be governed by righteousness, peace, and joy within you or it's not going to ooze out and show up and show out out there where others can get saved. And that's why we're not saving people with skinny jeans, bands, light shows, expensive buildings, uh, uh, smoke machines, and, and uh, inspiring life talks. We're just simply stealing people from other churches. We're, we're not the body of Christ is not growing. In fact, the statistics show the body of Christ has been in decline for a number of years. What is it, 600 churches a week are closing? It's, uh, there is a rapid drop, a rapid decline. People are not getting saved. You say, well, I saw some people getting saved. Yeah, but people are coming through the front door and they're walking out the back door. The church is absolutely porous. The bottom's fallen out. We, we are missing something. It's the kingdom of God. And, and we, we need to get back to the kingdom of God because when that kingdom is flowing through us, the Lord who's in charge of adding to the church will add to the church. 
You know, the Lord, the Bible says that, uh, that when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will lead and guide you into all truth. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of sin. We don't have to go out and force people to acknowledge that, that they're sinners or that they have to have sin. If we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convince them amen. when we share the word of God. Can you say amen? And I, I, I'll move on to the third point, but I'll share just this one. <clears throat> You've heard me share this. I love it so much every chance I get I share it because it's just really great. And that is the little girl that came in from the garden uh, one day uh, with a mangled up rose. Most of the petals ripped off of it. And she was really upset and asked her mother, she says, how come I can't open a rose? Every day God opens these roses. I tried opening it and I just, you know, I, I just, I rip it up. And the mother was really amazed by that question. And while the mother's trying to figure out how to answer it, the girl's eyes light up. She has a revelation. And she says, oh, wait, I know. I know. It's because God opens them from the inside. Right. And, and God opens all living things from the inside, from the inside. When we get our hands and try to pull those petals of people's lives open, we simply mangle them, bruise them, we break them. We kill them. But if we walk in the power of the kingdom, if we share Jesus Christ, if we lift him up, he will draw people. He is the one who opens souls. Can you say amen? amen. So what is the kingdom? It is the character of God controlling your life. Number three, the third truth that I've taught about the kingdom of God, and I spent quite a bit of time on it, is kingdom authority. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said, he opened his sentence by saying, look, in, in the King James says, behold, but it really means look. So if Jesus were to get up in the pulpit this morning and he opens up by saying, look, people, would your ears perk up? You'd think, oh, he's about to say something important. Look. So Jesus says to his disciples, look, I have given you authority over all of the power of the enemy. And in the King James Bible, it says, I have given you power over all the power of the enemy. And you kind of get the idea of two guys in one of those arm wrestling matches, and Jesus' muscle is bigger than the devil's muscle. And so when, when you wrestle with Jesus' power, you can overpower the enemy. If you think that's what he's saying, you'll be misguided. and You'll go running off in the wrong direction because he used two different Greek words when he spoke to the disciples. He said, I give you exousia over all the dunamis of the enemy. So the enemy has something called dunamis. We have dunamis too. The word dunamis is translated, it means ability, your abilities or your power. If you see a great swimmer, he has he has dunamis to swim. He has power and ability to swim, talents, abilities. So I give you exousia over all of the abilities of the enemy. The enemy has some abilities. He can, he can mess your life up. So what is this exousia? The Greek word exousia is I give you privilege. It also translates to the word I give you authority. I give you authority. And he gives us heaven's sheriff's badge that Jesus wore when Jesus commanded the evil legion to come out of the man. The, the, the legion saw the badge of heaven's authority 
And he said, well, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus said, go. How'd you like to cast out demons like that? Just tilt your head, go. <laughs> and a whole legion flees. It's the badge, exousia. Jesus said, I give you exousia over whatever abilities the devil has. Every Christian can learn how to walk in and exercise kingdom exousia. Every Christian. And the more you learn to use your authority in Christ, the more you will dominate the abilities of the enemy to, to interfere with your life and with your mission. If you're going to be successful in the mission of Christ, you must know how to operate in kingdom authority because the devil's going to come at you. He's going to come after you and he's going to use all the abilities of the world to run blockades against you. And so you, Jesus said, I'll give you something that can overcome all those. It's called kingdom authority. So what I'm going to tell you now has to do with how to have kingdom authority. And, and kingdom authority will overcome demonic power. So rule number one, rule number one about kingdom authority is that God's authority comes from abiding in his kingdom. Abiding. Remember the very first thing was to have the treasure. You must buy the field and abide. In John 15, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask what you will, it will be done. He, he, made, he was very clear on, when he was with his disciples at the Last Supper and he was giving all those lessons. Um, he really emphasized and laid out to them, you must abide in me. And he used the, the vine and the branches. He used all these different analogies. So... You must live in the kingdom. Live in the kingdom. Satan's greatest threat is not from born-again Christians. I used to think years ago the evangelical movement would kind of assert its supremacy, if you will, over liturgical Protestant churches and over the Catholic church by saying, well, we are born-again Christians. And I quickly found out that um, being a born-again Christian doesn't get you anywhere against the enemy. He laughs. He's a, born again means nothing to the devil. Absolutely nothing. It's not born-again Christians that threaten the enemy's kingdom of darkness. It's kingdom-abiding Christians. that and, and the kingdom doesn't care if you're a Catholic, if you're a Presbyterian, a Baptist, Episcopalian, the kingdom of God doesn't care if you're the only kingdom abider in your parish or in your congregation. Doesn't matter. God looks at his church from inside the hearts of those who receive his lordship. Hallelujah. And so you might be in a church where they're stale. No one's moving in the kingdom. But you can be the person that is literally just opening your community for a revival, for a move of God. A couple old ladies in the outer Hebride Islands a hundred years ago in Scotland brought down one of the greatest revivals of all time by just simply being kingdom abiding old ladies and praying. Somebody say praise the Lord if you know what I'm talking about. 
So the devil, therefore, because being born again doesn't bother him, but being a kingdom abider does, he concentrates his greatest efforts on getting you to live by your own independence and your own impulses rather than being led by the Holy Spirit. And uh, my wife does this thing, and I feel ashamed to have to, to testify this, but she always does this. And um, I, I'm, you know, tried to learn over the years to anticipate it and to be ready to go, amen, you're right, that's right. She says, have you prayed about it? And I'll have something planned. I'll think, you know, oh, let's do this. I've talked with so-and-so. It just seemed so right. Have you prayed about it? And I'm like, you could just see the little smoke <laughs> curling out of my ears. I'm steaming going, oh, for crying out loud. And then I feel like such a fool. Here I am. I'm the preacher. I'm the pastor, God's servant. And I'm going, I got an attitude because my wife stopped me and said, well, have you prayed about it? And I naturally want to say, well, you don't have to pray about everything. But the Bible says, pray without ceasing. And the Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Maybe that's why I'm still a baby and not a mature son. As many as are led by the Spirit, they mature. And they're not babies anymore. They're, they are full grown. Hallelujah. So the devil tries to get us away from being led by the Holy Spirit. And, and you say, well, how do you led by the Well, first of all, church, I've stepped out of the camera zone. I'm back in again. I stepped aside just for a moment to get, this is my Bible right here. Most of the New Testament pages are taped back in with scotch tape. This has been all over. It's been all throughout Africa, all over the place. Has, I can smell a little bit of Africa in the book of Ephesians. So at any rate, being led by the Spirit, you better start getting into the Word. Because the Holy Spirit and the Word work together. And so Christians that are like, eh, you know, I just go in church. I let the pastor talk to me. and You're never going to know the, bat, the, bat, the baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek the Lord out in the Word. God will move so. I'm just going to keep old Bible right there. You know, it took a soldier, it took a soldier to understand Jesus' kingdom authority. Jesus marveled over the fact that, that the centurion understood that Jesus' authority came from a chain of command. When the centurion came to Jesus and, and Jesus said, well, I'll go to your house and heal your service. He says, sir, it's not necessary because I am a man under authority and I have men under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes, and I follow orders. It's called a chain of command. And Jesus absolutely marveled. He said, I have not found a single Jew in all Israel that understands this. And they've had the covenant for hundreds of years. They don't get this. They don't. And it took a military man, took a centurion. He said, Lord, I know that you're directly under God's authority, and therefore, Whatever's making my servant sick is under your authority. So simply give an order, and my servant will be healed. Jesus went, wow, go on home, it's done. Hallelujah. Go on home, it's done. 
when you know kingdom authority and you walk in kingdom authority. And listen, I know people years ago made a big mistake in one of the movements that went through the church of just learning the phrases of authority. And they were quoting the word and they were saying, well, I just confess this and I claim that. And I believe in confessing the word. But if you don't spend time, if the Lord doesn't have your heart, we thought just if I learned the principle, if the principle is, is, is strong in my mind, but no, it takes a yielded heart. You see, the centurion said, I am under authority, not I have rank. I grew up in the military. My dad grew up in the military. I come from a long line of military people. I, my whole worldview is from a military perspective. And it, it seemed odd to me that my life ended up going into the body of Christ. I never intended to become a Christian, much less go into the ministry. By the way, I don't understand being a Christian and not being in the ministry. So to me, they're both one and the same. But I, I, I know what that is. But I, my whole ambition was that I was going to follow my dad and my granddad's and my family's business and make a career in the military. So I see life that way. So I understand what the centurion, the centurion meant. He, you just don't show up with a uniform and have some insignia, some rank. You have to be functioning in that chain of command or you have no power. And when you are having to function in battle, people will not follow you. If you try just using rank, they have to have the confidence to know that you are under authority and that rank is one that you have actually come by and earned. And that, that translates into influence and power. Hallelujah. So the point is that, that the centurion made Jesus marvel because he understood the chain of authority. Now, kingdom abiders are people who live under the authority of God, so they have that authority. And they're the only ones, now here's the part that I want you to hear, because I want to tie this in with what we said during our prayer time. God is wanting to send a fresh baptism into the body of Christ. And he's wanting to send a fresh baptism in, and renew us. I call that manifest authority. You can run around and declare your authority, but you've got to manifest that authority. And if demons aren't moving when you're praying, if stuff isn't happening when you're declaring, then, then you need to go back and reconnect with authority so that the power of God will flow. Manifesting kingdom authority, the only people on the face of the earth who actually do that are kingdom abiders. They don't have a denominational name. It's not because they dis were descended from some great preacher. They could have come out of nowhere like I did. It is your relationship to Jesus' authority that determines your level of authority. And there's no story in the Bible that illustrates this better than the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. When Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, and I'm going to close with this thought. He goes into the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is known worldwide for its worship of the 
the goddess Diana. And they are, the, 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 the trade of that city is built around idol worship. And they're very, very cosmopolitan city. They're a very prosperous city. And so idol worship was very much in vogue in the Roman Empire. And uh, right at one of the great centers of prosperity and commerce, and in the center of that was the worship of idols, was the city of Ephesus. Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, of whom he later writes in the book of Acts, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus. I thought, I've read the Bible, so I never heard like where apes attacked him or tigers or bears or anything like that. He was talking about spiritual wild beasts. He goes into Ephesus and he wants to break Satan's hold over the city and he wants to get people saved in that city. Well, Satan owns Ephesus. So he goes in and he starts preaching the gospel and he, he casts demons out, spirits of divination. And the city leaders are rattled. They're rattled when they see that their demon-possessed people are having their demons cast out by this Jesus who Paul's preaching. So one of the sorcerers in the city happened to be Jewish, a man named Sceva, who has seven sons, and he's teaching them the family, the family business is, is exorcisms. So he was an exorcist, and his seven sons were exorcists. So they saw Paul casting demons out in the name of Jesus, and they said, all right, this guy, we know his method. This has ruined the churches today. Churches are using methods. They go to conferences, and they, look, they read books. They pick up books from the latest church that had a revival or the church that had a great growth spurt, and they try to take these methods and use them. And they end up getting the clothes beat off of them every single time. Because the Bible says that God sent the Holy Spirit to add to the church. So you start leaving your relationship with the Holy Spirit. So at any rate, so Stephen and his seven sons, they, they know this one madman in the city. Nobody can really cast the devil out of him. Or maybe they have any, just, they just keep coming back. So they go get the madman. And they said, we're going to use the name of Jesus on him because Paul was getting it done with the name of Jesus. And they went into the guy's house and they start calling over him in the name of Jesus. We adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul is preaching. They wanted to make sure that they had that connection. This is the, this is the authorized name of Jesus because we got this from Paul. So they wanted to make sure the demons understood. This is the Jesus Paul's talking about. So you can see the way they're thinking, because Jesus was not an uncommon name. So we adjure you by the name of Jesus, who Paul is preaching. You, you de devil, come out of that man. Well, the Bible says the man jumped up out of his lazy boy recliner and attacked all seven of his sons. I don't know how he did that. All my, he must have been like a bobcat or something. Just and He just went and tore into them. And the Bible says that he ripped all their clothes off of them. So they probably had a little perverted thing there going on there too. But um, so the, the scripture says that after they hear them screaming, 
that uh, the son's saying, come out by the name of Jesus who Paul preached. Then they hear all this rumbling and crashing and smashing and screaming as these guys are getting, and then one by one they all start hitting the door and they burst through the door and they're naked and they're bleeding. And the Bible says they're naked and they're all bloody. The, the, the devil in that man jumped up and said, oh yeah, Jesus, I know about Jesus, I know Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Who are you? The, de the world is just going to jump up in, in the church's face and go, all right, so we know about Jesus. Right. Who are you? Exactly. No authority. They're, they were trying to use, they thought the exousia was, we'll use the name. But if you're not under, if Jesus is not Lord of your life, he's not leading you. If you're not obeying him, you're not going to have any power. The devil's not going to obey you. So, the scripture says, a few verses down after the story of the sons of Sceva, it says in verse 20, so, so it's like the narrative in Ephesus goes on. He tells the story of how, the, how uh, they cast out the demons. Uh, I mean, the demons uh, drove the sons of Sceva out. The Bible says immediately following that, they had a, a whole bunch of people that that uh, practiced curious arts and the occult, all got saved and confessed Jesus Lord. They were in fear and trembling. They realized, oh my gosh, Paul has got something. Not just Paul has an idea or a name, but they are powers with him. Because when Paul says in Jesus' name, those devils come out. When we try it, we don't have any standing. So they it hit them in a revival God God broke the spirit of the occult over that city. And the scripture says they all came together and they, got, they came to Paul and they got saved and they made a big bonfire and they all brought their magic books and burned them. And it was worth like a ton of money when they burned all of their books and they turned. I mean, they repented and turned to Jesus Christ. And it ends up and summarizes by saying in verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed and prevailed the kingdom of God will prevail anywhere where people walk under the authority of Jesus Christ and understand that kingdom authority can you say amen I want you to close your Bible stand with me this morning we will continue our um, uh, list of the points of the kingdom next week, praise the Lord. Uh, but this is enough to, to digest and put into practice.